I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode was recorded in March, shortly before coronavirus turned our world upside down. In this time, my guest today, Michael Rosen, has been extremely sick. I thought long and hard about airing this episode, but felt it would be a disservice to the great man himself if we didn't. As you'll be able to tell listening to this, I could have talked to Michael for many more hours. His charm, wit and warmth was quite overwhelming. And I know that all of our listeners will join me in wishing him a speedy recovery. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. We think of play as something simplistic, something that children do, that adults have grown out of. We're often grateful when our children are playing nicely because it gives us time to do our own stuff while our children are content. My guest today is the children's poet, author and broadcaster, Michael Rosen, who believes that the act of play is more sophisticated and important to our development and ability to navigate life than most of us recognise. Rather than regarding play as something that only children take part in, he says, how we play should change and develop with us. In fact, I believe that play is key to helping us develop and reach our full potential. So I don't care how old you are, you might be seven or 17 or 170. What I do know is that however old you are, you're never too old to play. Michael, thank you so much for coming along today. You're now in your 70s. Do you still play? Yes, I do. I play in my head with ideas, with thoughts. I was playing around with thoughts just today. You know, there's a guy writing to me about how we used to stand outside the school gate, or there's somebody else writing to me, mostly on Twitter this is, about the fact that when Chelsea beat Liverpool, the Chelsea players didn't have beards, but the Liverpool players did, and whether this... So playing with images, ideas all the time, and occasionally faffing around with things to do with scribbling. I do doodles, and also, I suppose you could say, playing with what I might do just for the next year or the year after. So, I mean, some people call that speculation or planning, but I'd, I prefer to think of it as play because it's much more open-ended. It's not planning. It might grow to be planning, but it isn't actually planning. It's the first stages when you're sort of daydreaming forwards. But do you think in a way that work is potentially adult play? I mean, I remember when I was little, one of my favourite games was playing bank. And it was the time when, you know, you went to a bank and you had like forms that you could fill in in triplicate. And I used to bring them home and we'd Mm. basically play administration. And is... I mean, your job, obviously, as a poet, you're engaging in wordplay the whole time. But I wonder whether a fulfilling career is essentially a more sophisticated and adult form of play. 
I think a fulfilling career can be provided, and this I, I try to make this point in, in the book, that you've got to take out the element of fear of failure. That if, if you've got a big stick hanging over you and that if this bit that you're going to be doing for the next half hour, hour, a week, or whatever it is that your employers want you to do or if you're self-employed that you've got to do, if, there's, if the big stick that's hanging over you is too much of a big stick, well, then you won't have the freedom. So I factor in this sense of without fear of failure, that that has to be pretty crucial. If you fear failure as you're playing or planning, speculating, dreaming, daydreaming, any of that, then it will narrow down the options and you won't play freely. So, you know, I'm quite happy for people to do things that are planned and, you know, it really must be, you know, after all, might want an architect to make sure that, you know, they plan it right, otherwise the building will fall down and all the rest of it. But at some stage, you would quite like them to play early on with all sorts of possibilities without being too worried that it might fail. Do you see what I mean? So, yes, in short, many jobs can be like that. But, of course, as we know, many jobs, the options are pretty narrow. I mean, I always watch the bus drivers. I travel a lot by bus. And you know that the only way they can survive is by daydreaming. You can just see it on their faces that they sort of stop at the, the bus stop and wait. And, and you can see just in the look on their faces that they're daydreaming. So they're, they're factoring in play into their job. It makes it possible for them to carry on, otherwise they'll go nuts. But it isn't totally necessary for the task of driving a bus, do you see what I mean, in a narrow sense. So I think we all build in various forms of play into our lives. For some of us, it gets very restricted. For some of us, it's very lucky. We spend a lot of time doing it like me mm. and do you think play is something that comes naturally to children or is it something that they have to learn I mean interestingly you know the bus drivers are obviously excellent at play because their ability to daydream lets them do quite a boring mm. you know mm. routine repetitive, based, repetitive yes, job that's right. children whether it's natural or not it's very difficult to say isn't it I mean, you're a mother, so you've seen your, child, your children from the, the moment they're born. And as a dad, I've, I've sort of, you're just a little bit further away, even when you take the baby yourself. But in my experience, that those first three, four, five weeks, you start to see a baby playing. You start to see them trying out things in a different way so in different ways so they'll turn their head and if you know they can hear and you click your fingers and they respond and it doesn't take them long to to respond to you playing with them put it that way and famously as described by the psychologists and psychoanalysts that you'll see a one-year-old playing with the very first story of all which is called the Da and Fort story so what that is, is that, I mean, I watched, I have a granddaughter and I watched her and she just almost on schedule from what Freud and the others have written. She, I forgot what it was. I think it was a little wooden toy. She threw it. And guess what? I picked it up. And what did she do? Throw it again. And then I picked it up and she laughed and threw it again. So she's made a story. She's discovered that if she does that, there's a response. Guess what? Granddad picks it up gives it back to her, and then she throws it down again. So she's discovered through some kind of method in her head that something will happen. It creates something new. So that's a one-year-old. She, she hasn't got words. She hasn't got language. She's got laughter. So 
And she's got someone to play with. Yes, that's right. We know we, we, lit, we metaphorically die. We metaphorically die if we have no, no one to play with. Yes, you can definitely say that, that it's a very social thing. And of course she is, to pick up on that, she's actually constructing a story out of the play with the person who happened to be me. Yeah, so whether it's learnt or whether they, it's built into human, human psyche, I mean... We know when we watch kittens and when we watch puppies, or if you see David Attenborough's film of tiger cubs, they appear to be doing something like play, don't they? They push things about and jump on each other and do mock fighting and mock hunting and so on. So there is a, a sort of a kind of rehearsing, let's play at being big and fierce and scared and then and running away and coming back again and jumping on mum and see what mum does. And you see this in most mammals, don't you? I mean... Anyone who's had a litter of kittens or a, a litter of puppies at home, you can just watch them. But I that mean, could also be interpreted as honing their survival techniques. Yes. Whereas play with human... I mean, you talk about play being such an important part of the development. And mm. when we think about the development of our children, we think maybe numeracy and literacy and all those sort of slightly more tangible things that are taught in schools. Yes. And yet your argument is that actually play is one of the most important skills that they learn. Why is it so important? Well, what if, let's posit it this way, that the play of an infant child and the play of a puppy or a kitten is, is very similar, but the key thing that then f we have to factor in is the fact that humans have language. So that the moment the child comes into the world, we're saying things to them and we're putting our talk into the play. We're saying, oh, catch the ball, I'm rolling the ball, oh, lovely, throw me back the ball, or we, we do some scribbly things, or we make spaghetti paintings, or any of that stuff, and it's full and full and full of talk. And it's pretty clear that this is unique to human beings because talk enables us to project forwards, think back, and, and to plan things, and also to play with the very sounds that we make. So that makes us different from the Tiger Cubs playing, and that happens straight away. So maybe what it is is that the play to start off with is, is very similar, but then it becomes actually deadly serious, even though it's fantastic fun, is the fact that we put in all the language with it, explaining things, justifying things, saying, do you remember yesterday? Let's play that game again. No, let's not. So it all becomes part of how we are human, which is this business of being able to go project forwards, plan things, use our memories, talk about them, talk about our dreams and our daydreams, talk about what we might do, what we could do, and also to play with the sound of it, which animals don't seem to be able to do, that, that whole package at any rate. So it's basically preparation for life. Mm. And I suppose honing their skills of communication and... And let's say, let's say continuation of life as well, that I think if you do no play, then it's, it, it is very hard to do life. I mean... I, I can say, by and large, I don't suffer from depression. Uh, I've never thought that I'll, I'll take my own life. But people who reach a dead end, insofar as I've heard them talk, that part of the problem is, is there doesn't seem to be any point in being in now. And one of the great things about play is that it does give you a reason to be in now because you're having fun doing it. And, you know, it, I don't want to make it sound very special either it could be very very ordinary you know I used to watch my dad gardening and I'm, I'm not I don't do gardening and he used to try and get me to help in order to get me interested in gardening and he'd he'd say read out the packet 
right? I can remember this, you see. So I'd read out the packet and it said, you've got to put the seed in with John Innes compost number one. And he'd say, nah, don't bother with that. And I'd go, what do you mean? It says here you've got to use John Innes. No, 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 bone meal. So I'd say, well, what was that? He said, no, 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 that's what you use, bone meal. So I think back to that. And what he was doing was that he was basically playing with it. Instead of taking the instruction as given, which I would do, you know, he's John Innes, number one, I better go and buy some of that. He had decided that, you know, his plants had grown very nicely on this horrible stuff called bone meal that smells and, you know, he really wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. And he decided that was better. So something as ordinary as that, as just sticking a plant in the ground, he had found a way to play with it, which gave him satisfaction, which then when the plant grew, he could say, hey, Con, to my mum, that's Connie, hey, Con, have a look at this. Look at the, whatever it was, you know, fuchsia, I think. <laughs> anyway, he'd say, look at that. God, the, the, the cotoneaster, my word, it's come on well. There was a reason to live, wasn't there? So even something as ordinary as that, I mean, I'm not a cook, but if it says something in the recipe, like, you know, put the, put the thyme into the olive oil and then sort of almost scorch it in order to start off the, the tomato sauce. And I do that and then I think, well, actually, you know, I really like the taste and the smell of oregano. And the recipe doesn't say oregano, so I chuck in some oregano, but it doesn't say that. Because I think, well, you know, I've been to the Mediterranean, I've seen people chucking in fresh oregano, so I'm going to do that. Well, again, terribly ordinary. I mean, there's nothing more ordinary than sticking some herbs in some oil and frying it, is there? So, but it makes life worth it. And then you eat it and it tastes nice and you go, well, that was it. I think people, if you don't play, then I suspect at any rate that it's, sometimes quite difficult to live in the moment and say this moment is worth it. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners are parents of younger children. And I think what I've taken from this conversation and from your book is that children are conditioned to play for, to, up to an extent. But as parents, what we can do is encourage them to play more, to discover mm. their imagination more, to create a sort of fertile environment in which play flourishes. And I certainly find with my experience with my children is that sometimes they do say, oh, I'm bored, I can't mm. Mm. do and, and it just needs a little nudge for mm. them to discover the excitement of building a fort or pretending that you're escaping from a wicked witch or whatever that that play is and that's what actually I love about the book so I'd love to talk a little bit about the different kinds of play that you've identified in the book yes well yeah I mean I'm not going to say it's easy because you know we're tired we work hard you know we come home and the last thing we want to do is to sort of put ourselves in the shoe of a two-year-old, shoes of a two-year-old, four-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever. You know, you're hoping by the time they're eight, they'll just entertain themselves. I've, you know, I've had all those feelings. So, you know, I don't want to turn into some sort of play god who like, you know, sort of gets down with their kids all the time. You know, my kids know me as sort of ratty old dad, just like any other dad. But essentially, if you do believe that play is important, then there are times when you have to be on their level in order to understand what it is they want. So you can play in so many different ways with objects, with words, with what we might call the arts in general, whether that's singing, painting, drawing, dancing. And it's finding that moment, isn't it? It's finding the one that will trigger your children so that they don't feel bored. And sometimes they'll be even more bored if you direct them. So you might be onto a lose-lose situation there that if you go, well, why don't we play with some wool and make pom-pom hats? 
and they go, the last thing they want to do is make that. On the other hand, you might trigger it off because you've got a funny word game that you know how to play. And, of course, we also use, and quite rightly, what I would call gaming rather than playing, and I'm not against this by any means, all the lovely games we've got, whether it's Scrabble, Monopoly or Ludo and all these, but it's that free play when I always feel that the child can make those leaps, those leaps in understanding that are that are bit, I'm looking over your shoulder and I can see those wooden spoons. Now there's no better toy than a wooden spoon. You know, you can whack things with it and make noises. You can draw on them and make faces and dolls and puppets. You know, you can use them in so many different ways. And yet we might think our wooden spoons are sacred and we mustn't let the children anywhere near them because, you know, I'm just about to stir the soup. But then they're so cheap anyway that you could give them ten wooden spoons and it, would, it wouldn't even cost you the you know, what a, what, a, what a board game would cost you. And you never know what they might do with them. You know, if you, you've, you've got lovely little, you know, if you've got two, two um, wooden spoons, you've got a lovely way to make a rhythm if you've got a song or a poem that you want to make. So quite often it's a matter of finding the thing at that moment. And in a way, it's really a plea for intuition. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love your, your chapter on wordplay, which is essentially, I mean, you made a career of wordplay. You're a poet. Yes. You've written. It's a bit cheating, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. But it makes total sense. And I do think there are some children that are more susceptible to that. My daughter, for example, just loves words. Mm. And whenever I want to get her to do something, we've started doing this, is that we make a sort of nonsense poem that finishes with the sentence that I want to say. So I'll say, plinkety plonk, tinkety toes, Iona, please put on your clothes. Mm. And we can have a whole conversation like that. And of course, she thinks it is the funnest oh, way to communicate. Yes, And I just... it. it the, the thing about words is that they are free and some of the, the I mean, they don't cost anything. Um, right. So those word games, and, and you can play them wherever. You, you know, so often as a parent, you, you're sitting, I was waiting for the dentist the other day and you just want to entertain them for 30 minutes or 15 minutes. You know, you don't have a toy. Okay, fine, you might have your phone. But actually thinking of a word game, I have never is always a real sort of, not oh, I have yeah. never, not I have yeah. never. No, that's the Would that's, you rather? Would you rather? That's all right. I've never is good. That's lovely. You see, you've just played with without you knowing you did you took would you rather you remembered the sound of it and you came have what did you make say i have never i have never that's Such brilliant risque drinking you've game. just invented a new game it's wonderful <laughs> i have never and then you can make up the things you've never done it doesn't even have to be the things you 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 would want to do it could just be i've never done and the other great thing is you can use all the signs around you i mean i can remember walking to school with my my youngest and there's a I think it's cable telly, isn't it? There's a sign on the road that says C-A-T-V on a manhole cover. And I said to him, you know what's down there, do you? You see there? I said, there's, there's cats down there. It's cat TV. <laughs> and they're down there and they're watching telly. 
And of course, he believed me, you see, because he was only about four or five. And I said, look, look, see, this is cat TV. And any sign you can play with, you know, there's a sign in the tube now that says, uh, London Underground, and it says, help point. And I told him that says, help point. And I stood next to him and said, look, what you've got to stand here, underneath here, and go, help, and then point. And uh, I'd... What we do, so with him now, is that whenever we see signs and so on, we just, we just play with them. There was, a, there was a band when I was a teenager called Sam and Dave. They did that song, Knock on Wood. And I was, somebody had just said they'd had a salmon, a salmon sandwich. And then I just suddenly thought, salmon, 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 Dave. And so I said, <laughs> you could have salmon. I know, you could have a story about fish called Salmon Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and it walks, swims around in the sea, singing "Knock on Wood," that old soul song. That old soul song. And I remember I put it up on Twitter, <laughs> and then somebody tried a very isn't another joke to reply to it by saying, "Well, you'd come a cropper." That's because there was another soul singer called Steve Cropper. So you can see that once you release people into the idea that you can chop up words in different ways and play with them, and you can do that with three-year-olds, or you can do it with. 73-year-olds like me, you see. So, you know, I've now got a character called... Sam, <laughs> that's funny, funny. Salmon Dave, you know, the, the, a, a salmon who, you know, sings soul music underwater. You know, obviously, he's underwater, he's a fish, isn't he? Mm. So anyway, those kinds of things, they're lovely fun to do with children. But as you say, if you've got a game like Would You Rather, then it's never-ending, isn't it? But now I'm going to steal your game. I Have Never, it's called, is it? I Have Never. I Have Never. That's really good. What a good one with four or five-year-olds. I have never, I have never climbed, I have never done this, I've never done that. One we play quite a lot is the, the truth, two truths and a lie. And you've got a, it's three statements. Yes. Two of them are true, one's a lie. And they've got to work out which one is the oh, lie. Oh, that's lovely. There's a, that reminds me of one that my daughter, I thought she'd made it up when she was about six or seven, that is, she would come up with three things and I had to make up a story about it. And then she would do the same. So she would say, it could be anything, you know, wooden spoon, tomato, rabbit. And then you've got to make up a story with a wooden spoon, a tomato and a rabbit in it. And, you know, she would let me have about 10 seconds and then I'd have to start making up the story. And then I would do the same for her. And she was much better at it than me. It was funnier anyway, her stories. Mine would get very kind of plodding. And anyway, I'd, I'd nick plots from like Macbeth or King Lear in order to make it work. You know, once there was a king, had three daughters. Right, now I'm there. And, and he, to one daughter, he gave the tomato. The other daughter, he gave the wooden spoon. The other daughter, he gave the rabbit. I'm away now, you see. I could do the King Lear story. But, you know, she was funnier because she was freer than I was. That's a great game to play with, with probably any child, I don't know, three up. You can make it two objects if you want. Can you make up a story with... And, and also, of course, you have to be quite fun in thinking up your objects to try and make them so difficult, to make them so difficult that the other person won't be able to do them. But that actually makes it funnier because to how to make, you know, a tomato and a rabbit appear in the same story. Yes. So that's a good game. And what I love about these, these games too is that it makes kind of ga playing these games a level playing field because the imagination of children is on par, if not richer mm. than ours as adults. I mean, if you're playing a game of, I don't know, backgammon, then obviously the skill you've acquired as, a, as an adult puts you ahead. But there's something about the imagination. I mean, you must probably find it that sometimes when you play these games with the three words, they come out with a more outrageous link with these three words than you could ever have thought. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you pitch it right, it backs to, back to what we were saying, isn't it? Is that 
if you can pitch it right and think at the level of the child or to create the game that's right. And we know this, you know, I'm fascinated. I watch people on beaches. So here we've got these games, cricket, football, tennis. They're incredibly rule-bound, aren't they? You know, and we pore over the facts to whether they were offside and whether that ball had touched the bat and whether they touched the net, whether it really was a let or not, all this stuff. And we watch this and get quite obsessive as adults, you know, put it mildly, I go football, I have a season ticket at Arsenal, right, and get really obsessive. And then we go to the beach and all the rules disappear. We make up versions of these games. So, you know, you can have football where there's only one goal. So you have five people all trying to get the ball in this goal. You have arguments as to how wide or narrow the goal is. So when you have a young child, you narrow the goal down. Nobody says, no, you can't change the goalposts, literally, as we, you know, you can't do that. You go, well, yes, you can, because it's a four-year-old. You want them to enjoy the game. So we make up these rules very, very quickly on beaches. Or you play the, the wooden racket and the, the wooden racket and the ball game, and you might just do it so you tap it to and fro, or you might make up a rule that if it bounces, you get a point or you don't get a point or whatever. And I'm always amazed, I mean, I shouldn't be amazed, but how free people are with this. And then when they build the sandcastles, it's not a matter, I mean, some people do who could build the biggest castle and stuff, but they get beyond that pretty quickly. And what they're interested in is how you can build a castle and the water comes in and destroys it and it's funny and then you build another one and, or if you build a trench that the water comes in round it and so on. And I, I, I can see, and you see old people doing it with their grandchildren, older people with their grandchildren, and you can see the kind of, it's almost like the relief that there is this space that you can play freely. And it's because there's this expanse of material that has no edges. It's sand and water, and it doesn't have to be contained. It doesn't matter if you make a mess, because you're going to go back to your room, wash yourself off or whatever. And it really doesn't matter. And I just think that is like the epitome of free play, that we can learn from what we do on beaches and say, well, how do we apply that to our lives? And you know that if you don't keep a three-year-old happy and you don't keep granny happy on the beach, then, you know, you're going to have a miserable time. So you better think up stuff that's going to work for both. I mean, burying dad is obviously ideal, but, you know, beyond that. So I think, in a way, you can locate a moment when you felt free and playing with the stuff you've got, materials, whatever it is, and then say, well, how could you be like that in your home or in your daily life? Why, why leave it to that two weeks you're away on a beach you know there's another 50 weeks of the year to have that kind of fun and the spirit of it and the sheer joy of it I mean you see people are so happy but I think that flexibility is also so important I think that I see this with my children they're quite rules focused they're quite health and safety and I think Mm. that is a symptom of modern day childhood Mm. so I've always regarded my role as a mother to be able to say, you know, if you don't have everything you need for the recipe, it doesn't mean you can't make the recipe. If you don't have all the, the bits you need for the game or the bits of the Lego, it doesn't mean that that toy is redundant. It means you just have to be a bit more flexible, think outside the box. And that is a really important skill that yeah. that, that kind of free play can... But that's, that's almost, you were talking about learning. That's almost unlearning, isn't mm. it? Because we go to school and, of course, we learn all these rules, whether they're totally appropriate or not we'll leave to another day to talk about but anyway we do it's very very rule bound school is very rule bound in hundreds and hundreds of different ways whether you can walk or run and whether you've got to put your hand up if you want a wee or not and all this stuff so it's, it's like hundreds and hundreds of rules and it, we sit down with a piece of paper and you've got to write in a sentence and put a full stop at the end and all these things and so the whole day if you think of it from the point of view of a six-year-old say or an eight-year-old you'd be forgiven for thinking that 
actually what you do at school is about learning hundreds of rules. Even if what you're learning is that the Stone Age came before some other age, then you're learning the rule of the order of the ages. So in order to do what you just said, is that let's say you were going to make biscuits with your kids and you went to the cupboard and you didn't have any white sugar, you only had brown sugar, and you say, well, well, let's make it with brown sugar, see what it tastes like. Well, you might do that, but you can imagine an eight-year-old going, no, Delia Smith says here that it says, you know, white sugar. And you go, well, let's see what happens with it. Now, you might be doing that from your experience and your knowledge. It's true, but I mean, you might encourage the kid, you say, well, what else is sweet? And there's honey and there's golden syrup, if people still eat that. You know, there's a variety of things there. And you say, well, or even apple juice. I remember somebody explaining to me that you could use apple juice in a variety of ways in cooking that we never think of because, you know, it's sweet. And so you can use it as a sweetener. And I remember thinking, what? How could you do that? It tastes of apple. And you think, yeah, well, why not? You know, we've invented this incredibly pure thing called sugar, but... What did the ancient Greeks do? You know, they used honey and, and, and fermented App- apple and yeah, apple, yeah. Absolutely. So, or even just mash up an apple, you know. Um, and that thing where you can say to children, can we think of something else? Which sadly is also getting squeezed from education because I'm afraid there is this great belief in something called direct instruction. And they say that asking children to speculate is, I quote, not efficient, Right. So, you know, this is very sad, but this is actually what's going on. So even, you might not say it's a substitute for transmission of knowledge, of saying this is how it is, but in order to excite children in something, we might say, well, what if? You know, if you want to say, what if somebody wanted to invade this country, let's say you're doing the Second World War, how would they do it? Well, they'd have to get into boats or whatever. You might speculate about that and then maybe teach whether, you know, whether this country was invaded or not, and if it was, and when, and how, and how did they get here, and so on. But you might want to start off with speculation. But, you know, I'm afraid some people think we shouldn't even do that, which is incredibly sad. You know, you just think, what are they doing at this very moment? We're sitting here talking at the time of this coronavirus thing. And every time I watch them on the television and listen to them on the radio, at the heart of what they're doing is actually a form of play because the interviewer says, what should we do this and what will happen then? And then you hear them speculating and then they say, well, what should we do? And they go, well, should we put a kind of cordon sanitaire around a town? Should children go to school or not? I heard this morning, the guy was speculating about what would be the point of closing schools and whether it would be a good idea or whether it wouldn't. And I could hear him thinking it through that, you know, would keeping children at home somehow or other make it less likely that we'd be passing uh, the virus to each other? And even even over the business about washing your hands and, you know, what song you're going to sing, and people saying, oh, well, you know, you've got to sing Happy Birthday as if somehow that's the only 20-second song, you know, you could think. <laughs> and someone said, you know, we all live in a yellow submarine. I mean, that, that lasts for 20 seconds. I just thought, you know, something. But even so, the very fact that they came up with it meant somebody had a little funny, playful thought, good luck to them, and thought of happy birthday. So even when you're faced with this major crisis, that actually the problems, when you come back to it, the scientists and everybody else, the planners, politicians, have got to play with it because they've got to say, here are 60-plus million people. How do they get in touch with each other, literally? And where, what ways can we do to either prevent that happening or acknowledging that it happens and what you do to avoid it. Well, all that's play. 
Well, and also, if you think, you know, the way we've developed is because of outrageous ideas. Yes. I mean, think about vaccinations. Oh, For yes. vaccines, you know, let's actually inject a little bit of what's going to, might kill you yeah. to teach your body. I mean, that, when they first mooted that idea, must have sounded like a ridiculous idea. Well, indeed. I mean, it's quite interesting. Look her up. Lady Wortley Montague, I think it was. And she was the one who, pra- who, who, who had a go with cowpox. And it's quite interesting the way she played with it because they already knew that there was a level of efficiency of wiping... Sorry, this gets rather horrible, but wiping bits of cowpox on you into an open wound that somehow or other it gave you better protection. So in some form of folk medicine, that already existed. And then she tried being more, as it were, explicit, explicit and efficient about it. And that's the sort of part of the origins of vaccinations. Yes, indeed. So that's right. Or if you think of how did we find out that electricity can flow down wires? Now, you'd have thought that is just if that must be following rules, following instructions. Well, in actual fact, you know, why have we got the word Volt? Because it comes from this wonderful man called Alessandro Volta, an Italian. And up until he came along, they thought that electricity was animal. It was like a sort of quality of, of animals because they worked out that, you know, you could find electricity in animals you could make frogs legs jerk if you did stuff and all the rest of it but he thought that you could make electricity travel through a wire between two bits of metal it's so obvious to us we don't even think twice about it but if you go back to 1810 nobody had thought of this and what he did was put a piece of metal on top of his tongue and a different kind of metal under his tongue and he had some foil that's what they always describe it as so it must be some beaten metal so he turned it into a kind of wire and ran it between the two bits in his mouth why in his mouth because it's not pure water is it it's 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 saline in our mouth it's it's got it so he did that and he felt his tongue tingle and he realized at that moment that something was happening and but it was traveling because then when he took the the foil away it didn't travel there was no tingle so it only tingled when he had the foil between the two bits of metal pure play he did it with the knowledge that he had he speculated he tried it out he took the foil out, put the foil back for it, and then they started setting up experiments and they discovered that you could make something happen between one piece of metal and another joined by another kind of metal, a, a wire. And they discovered that, and that was thanks to dear Mr. Volta. So here's this thing that, I mean, you know, the whole world goes around this stuff, the fact that we learnt that we can make this electricity stuff travel down wires. It doesn't happen naturally because there aren't any wires out there. But So they discovered that, they invented it and discovered it, and it came from play. I mean, just think of this bloke sitting there, you know. You, know, you can see him you know, saying to his, to his mum, you know, or somebody, you know, you can just see it. Or to his kids, hey, look, what are you, do- what are you doing, Dad? Hang on, I'm just discovering that electricity goes here. You know, it's a little experiment, isn't it? It's wonderful. But it's, it's almost like a, you know, a more complex version of what if. You know, I, I think back, I... I I work a lot with pregnant women and I think who came up with the idea of an epidural you know the fact that you could isolate nerves in the spinal column to remove the pain and heat sensors and that was essentially what if we could do that what we could make childbirth totally different for the for those that that needed it or what if that you've you've had 30 40 50 years of a certain way of doing childbirth and then various people come along and say, well, what if instead of a woman lying on her back, what if you give her some time to walk around the room shouting or indeed kneeling or running or putting her hands up against the wall and screaming? 
that you know that though it you know may not be terribly as easy to manage as having laying a woman down in a bed and having eight people standing around her going push 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 that maybe that might you know so in other words it may not be right for everybody or it may not even be right for you know for the whole through the labor but to actually think well maybe there might be a reason why people 100 years ago 200 years did have their babies standing up for some, some bit some women did and some women didn't so even that thing of playing with what we used to do might be useful in childbirth as well i mean it it's a different mindset isn't it i mean i i have i have no thyroid gland and it's quite interesting. I, I kept going to the doctors complaining about different symptoms all around my body, you see. And the doctor, the GP, never connected up the different symptoms. So I would go with one symptom and so on. So in the end, I was referred to the kidney specialist. And I sat in front of the kidney specialist. And he started asking me all sorts of questions about my, just sort of like, what was the weather like yesterday? And I thought, what's he doing? And finally, he said, do you know, I don't believe any of this stuff. And he swept these kidney notes to one side. And he was on the metabolic side of the hospital. He said, you have an underactive thyroid. And then I said, well, how did you know? And he said, well, I was watching your eyes and your lips. And of course, what he was doing was he was switching the frame of reference. He's sitting there day after day seeing people with kidneys. And he's made a thing. This doesn't look like kidneys to me. What else can it be? So he's using his knowledge but he's got to play with it. And one of the ways he gets it to play is to get me to talk. Any old gobbledygook, any old gobbledygook, because my speech was slurred. So he might have been wondering whether I was drunk, drugged or something like that. And then he realized I wasn't. And he's looking at my eyelids, which were droopy. And then he starts looking at my hair, which was looked a particular kind of way. So he's going, ah, chung, 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 and he's playing with it. And it's going, chuk, chuk, chuk. You can sort of hear, feel it like a, sort of like, like a sort of thinking box, isn't it? And then he got it. And then with the blood test, it was all shown to be the case. But it's quite interesting that he had to play, he had to get out of the envelope he was in, didn't he, to be able to diagnose me. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that, fascinated by how you can present to a doctor and then they have to move out of the frame. And those doctors who can't, because it's such a rule-bound thing being a doctor, but you've got to have the flexibility in order to do it. One of the, the plays I, I feel is most synonymous with childhood is that imaginative play, mm. is that play that emerges from boredom and, you know, where you are. And it's one of, when I look back at my childhood, those were the funnest games, you yeah. know, making a camp in the wood and we were escaping from someone. Yeah, and that, there would always be, I mean, that, interesting, you talk in your book about you playing in, in the old coal coal bunker coal bunker in That's your house a, that, that dates me doesn't it so yes yeah, so this was an occasion so out we lived in a flat and there was a backyard and in the backyard was well i mean it was a sort of low shed basically so what you did was fill it up with coal so there was what do you call it a lid on top that we had a hinge so you opened it up i'm kind of demonstrating as we're talking and then down below was a hatch and then you put your shovel in there and filled up your coal scuttle and took it to the fire. So that's what it was. But it was this wonderful playground, as far as I was concerned, because you could lift up these lids, and there were two hatches on it, actually, where the coal went in. So you could climb down one hatch, sit down in the dark, or you could open up the hatch. You could peep out the hatch down below on the ground. So as far as I was concerned, it was a spaceship. Kind of the era of, you know, the spaceships didn't exist. So they only existed in comics. So no one had gone into space in spaceships. They'd been in aeroplanes. So I read a comic called The Eagle that had Dan Dare and the Treens. So as far as I was concerned, I could be Dan Dare. 
So I could role play being Dan Dare, getting in there. And on one occasion, uh, I mean, I can remember it quite well, was that I got in into it and then I was opening up one of these these lids, these, these lids and, and going to space, going to the moon, getting people to help me, diving back down again, shouting from inside <laughs> and all the rest of it. And then I came up and peeked out and there was my dad standing there. And he said that he had been standing there watching me for over 20 minutes, nearly half an hour, he said. And I was quite embarrassed. And he said, no, it was just quite incredible because I'd been doing it all, it was a monologue. I'd, been, I'd done a half hour monologue of going to the moon. I think I was about eight or nine. And I, I think back to that and I think, well, what was I doing? Well, I was role playing. There's also a thing for some boys, you know, this idea that you can kind of dominate the universe. You can go anywhere, do anything. You know, some people call it the colonial gaze. You know, we look at the world and say, I can conquer that. And of course, we had comics and stories that said how brilliant the British were at doing this. We might think differently now. But anyway, so there was all this. And, and I used to read this and, you know, imbibed it in me that I, you know, what would be the greatest thing of all? You could be Dan Dare and defeat the Treens, who were these kind of green Venusioids, I think, Venusians, I think they were. Well, I mean, that, that was what was held up in front of us as a great thing to be. There was no framework in school where you could live out this dream. You know, the essays that we had to do were very kind of formal, you know, trees. There are many kinds of trees, you know, that sort of thing. You couldn't say, be Dan Dare. No school would ever set you that. So... I could give full free reign to my fantasy, live out this kind of desire for omnipotence or omniscience, whatever you want to call it, be all seeing, all doing, and and no harm, no, no, not doing anybody any harm, it's free play, and and finding out what it's like to be that person, and at the same time, have to say this, using the materials available. So you know, instead of thinking of a coal bunker being only and solely for, for coal, instead of thinking, well, what if it was something else? So this is a crucial part of play, where you take something like a plant, I'm looking around, you see we talked about the wooden spoons or lamps or anything, and within safety <laughs> principles, what if they could be something else? And so, and that takes us back to old Alessandro Volta. I mean, he said, what if this little bit of foil could be something else other than the thing that you wrap around some food or whatever else they used foil for, but it could be a conductor. So I was treating the coal bunker as a flexible thing that I could play with. And, you know, I, I'm saying, I'm making the claim that I learned a lot from that. I was learning from play about the world being a thing that you can adapt and change and also something about myself. And looking back on it, of course, I can play with it in my mind and just think, you know, whether it was, you know, what kind of a game was it and where did it come from? Like this speculation about reading The Eagle and watching Kenneth Moore films like Above Us the Waves <laughs> and, and how, you know, you, you, you felt so emotional about these things in that post-war period that it, it felt so sort of powerful that you were in this space called England or Britain and that somehow or other your parents had survived and how powerful that was and some of that would have been in the game do you see what I mean and luckily I had parents who thought that was wonderful I mean I remember though I felt start off with a bit embarrassed my dad saying how amazing that was and how he'd been absolutely spellbound listening to it so you know and there's that's, an that's too. a great help too if you look at children and how they do you know the scenarios they dream up so you know sometimes they're scary scenarios I remember you know uh, 
I remember there was the scenario that I made up, which was we had a, a stepmother who was really cruel and we were escaping from her. And, you know, there is, there's got to be an element of children maybe putting themselves in situations that maybe they fear to prepare themselves. I mean, you talked about pretending that your coal uh, hatch was a bunker during, during the Blitz. And, you know, I wonder if there's an element, a, a sort of psychological element of, of practising for yeah. fearful situations. That's the crucial part about all story, whether it's an opera, ballet, whether it's a song, you know, with, with Adele that's got a narrative, or whether it's the Odyssey, whether it's an Enid Blyton story. An enormous amount of stories, you might say, are trying outy things that you ask of your reader, viewer, whatever, to see what it feels like if you were that person. So if you take where the wild things are and Max gets to the point where he's tamed the wild things, so you've had a little go as a child thinking, well, what would you do if you were faced with wild things? Well, Max, he looks at them with his eyes. He stares into their eyes and that tames them. Wow, that's amazing. Would I know how to do that? I don't know. Am I clever? If I face to face with a wild thing, would I do that? So you speculate about that. And then it says, after he's tamed them, he feels a bit lonely. and they've, Well, they've gone on the rumpus. And he feels a bit lonely and he wanted to be where somebody loved him best of all. Now, that's a very interesting little phrase when you look at that, because it doesn't say he wanted to be with his mum or his dad or he wanted to be at home. It says he wanted to be where somebody loved him best of all. So the words are very cunning because Maurice Sendak, the writer illustrator, has asked you as a child to think, who might that be? Now, as a child, you might come up with various scenarios. You might want to say he wanted to be where somebody loved him best of all that will be his granny. Now, his granny's not in the book, but that doesn't matter. You could say granny. There is a mother in the book, so you might say mother or mummy. One of my kids did that, which is fine, except that mother in the book hasn't been sort of 100% who might love you best of all. After all, she has sent you to your room, and it looks a little bit of a lonely room when you look at it. There's no pictures on the wall, and there's no toys. And then at the very end of the book, if you're reading it for the 500th time, the supper's there, but there's no mum who said, oh, you got back, I was worried about you, or, yeah, come on, darling, all right, yeah, yeah, we had a little bit of a shout up there, but never mind. So I think it's very interesting. You see, there's a book, you say, in order to answer that question, to be where somebody loved you best of all, you have to play with the ideas in the book, and you have to go with Max and wonder what it would be like to be Max. So... I think that is at the heart of all stories. You go all the way back to the Odyssey. You know, there's Odysseus. He does this terrible thing to Polyphemus and takes his eye out. And he's got some little trick about, he tells Polyphemus that it was nobody who did it, you know, because his name's nobody. But when he gets out to sea, he shouts back to the other giants, I did it! I am Odysseus! And you go, oh no, why did you do that? <laughs> But you travel with Odysseus in your mind and you go, well, maybe I'd have done something like that. If I'd done something and it was heroic but a bit bad and yet you'd still go, yeah, you know, you look at all these boxers and wrestlers that my son makes me watch on the telly, you know, Tyson Fury and the rest of them. And I'm thinking, God. And they all do it. They all do this Odysseus thing and start going, I'm unbeatable, I'm amazing and so on. And I sort of think that's what these stories ask you to do. They ask you to try out the shoes without trying them on. They ask you to be in that person's shoes, and that's incredibly important. You know, trying out emotions, and, and this, this is right the way through to adulthood, isn't it? You know, I remember Joanna Trollope writing a book called Other People's Children, 
I remember thinking, well, at the time I was stepdad, you know, and thinking, oh my God, somebody's written a book about the thing that I'm doing, which is being with somebody with other people's children. And how do you do? How do, so I'll quickly read this and find out how the people in that story. It wasn't even Joanna Trollope saying what you do. It was characters. So it, in a way, it's you know, it's quite childlike, isn't it? You're going to look at these puppets, which we call characters in books, and see how they cope, and then learn about it from Joanna Trollope. You know which I think sort of amazing. And we do it, whether we do it consciously, as I did in a slightly artificial way, or whether we do it without sort of knowing, you know, you don't quite know. I mean, I, I went to Othello not long ago, and there's this terrible moment of realisation that Othello has at the end of the play. And you go, well, we knew that. We were trying to tell you that Desdemona hadn't done anything wrong. And you've, you're, I almost stood up in the theatre and said... We told... Oh, no, 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 it's a play. Stop. <laughs> sit down, Michael, sit down. And I was so upset on his behalf that he hadn't, as it were, listened to me. And then I realised I'd actually got so absorbed in it that I'd played along with the idea of being a fellow and being in this situation in which someone is tricking you and then being the person who knows, who could tell, who isn't in the play. It's only in the audience. Shakespeare's so cunning, he's created a triangle of Othello, the person who's playing the horrible tricks on Othello, and you're the other bit of the triangle, because you know, but you can't say anything. And you go, ah, 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 like that. And I remember I got quite upset about it afterwards and thinking, why didn't he, li <laughs> why didn't he listen to me? And you go, no, 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 it's a play, Michael, it's a play. So that's, you know, it's nice. It's called a play, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder, I, I mean, when I think back to my childhood and look at my children, that kind of imaginative play is, is the most important. And I wonder, just reflecting on what you said, was that I wonder if that's the reason, because essentially it is practicing for life. It's mm. practicing being a grown up. It's often mimicking, you know, what you see your parents doing and how you see adults interacting and also tackling issues that, you know, potentially don't really understand. Yeah. Like yeah, divorce yeah. or grief or, or catastrophe in Indeed. some way. Well, psychologists sometimes call it playing out. In other words, you you sort of expurgate it, you sort of get rid of it through play. I mean, that's what playing out. So, of course, sometimes they call that, they use that in quite a pejorative way when, let's say, you see somebody bullying somebody else and you say, well, he's playing out the fact that he was bullied. But you can also play out in play. So you might see aggression and say they're playing out their own problems in that act of aggression. But in play play... You might say that you play out in the play your feelings of insecurity, your feelings of fear, your feelings of loss. And also you can try out the very things you're not. So, you know, you quite often hear children imitating parents or doctors or people like that in their play because they're not parents, are they? So they, one of them says, well, look, I'll be, I'll, I'll be mum, I'll be dad, you be the child. And then that gives you a chance to try out the things that were said to you in ways that maybe you don't like. I mean, my brother was absolute genius at this. He could pretend to be my dad so convincingly in our play that, I mean, it was just mind-blowing. I mean, as a kid, I mean, it, he, well, I'll put it this way. My bro so here, here is it. My dad, in order, <laughs> in order to get us to be quiet, he didn't say shush or be quiet. He used to go like this. The noise. That's all he said, okay? <laughs> he put his hand, I can't, I can't show you, but he put his hand up at the side of his face. You see, okay, the noise. Like that. <laughs> so it was in its own way very controlling because it, it wasn't shush like that, just very sharp and finished over and done with. It was somehow or other that you had affected his innards, that, you know, it had impinged on his identity. Now, my brother was brilliant, and he still is, at picking up these little vibes in people. 
So we'd be mucking about, just doing anything at all, making a bit of a noise. My brother would suddenly stop it and go, the noise, like that, you see. And then we'd laugh. Now, so he's played with the thing that my dad did that really got him down. Whether it got me down as much, I don't know. But I know it definitely kind of would get to him that my dad had a way of being that could express disapproval without being told off. And it used to bother my, my brother in a variety of ways. So then he's done it. So he's sort of controlled it, brought it under his own control by acting it out. And then he's made me laugh. So now when my dad does it the next time, what happens? I fall about laughing. <laughs> so all the power that was in my dad by going, the noise, is now just a joke. And then, of course, we soon plucked up courage to do it ourselves. So the old man would go, the noise. And then we'd all sit around going, the noise, like this. So then he was disarmed. So the old man then couldn't do it anymore, could he? You see? Now, all that came through our dramatic play. And there was another one. The old man had a way of tutting and sort of brushing his hair back. Like that. So my brother would sit there in the corner going, like that. And... Again, it just completely disarmed him. So now, go forwards. Okay, I'm 16. I've been in France for six weeks on my own in a French colony de vacances. So my brother and my father meet me at the station. Must have been Victoria or wherever it was from the boat train. And what has happened over that period? Well, the answer is that my O-level, my GCSE results have come through. My dad... Uh, being originally a kind of migrant, an immigrant, you know, tremendous anxiety all around exams, will you succeed and so on, and all this weighed heavily on my brother about success and all that sort of thing. So I get into the car and I'm sitting on the front seat, my brother's in the back seat, okay? And we, we drive off and the old man says, we got your letters. So I said, yeah, that's good. And then he said, so you don't want to know what your O-level results are? So I went, oh, right, yeah. And then he said, not one A all B's you see and my brother in the back went not one A all B's and of course we just fell about absolutely laughing there was the old man probably genuinely upset that I hadn't got an A any, not a single one you know, not even in his subject English you see and hadn't got and my brother had completely diffused the whole thing with play and I genuinely didn't give a damn that I hadn't got an A Whereas my poor old brother, when he got a row of A's and one B, and the old man said, oh, right, yeah, mm, you got B for, let's say, German or whatever it was. You got B for German, did you? And my poor old brother was weighed down with it. But by the time it got through to me, it was just hysterically funny. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll sort of owe it to my brother for all the rest of my days that he, through play, sort of defanged my dad. You know, he drew, he drew, the, <laughs> he drew the teeth, didn't he? You know, he, he, he was... He was uh, he, 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 de he took the sting away, didn't he? Yeah. Through play. And, and that's, that was role play. He was pretending to be my dad in order to make him less kind of a menace, you know. And if you think about skills for life, if I think about the skills I want my children to have for life, having that kind of skill to be able to diffuse disappointment or failure, especially when it doesn't really matter, mm. through, through laughter is so much more important than knowing what a frontal adverbial is. Yeah, it's getting that scale, isn't it, of children to know what is serious and what's not serious. And it, I mean, sorry, grave. It's the gravity of it, isn't it? To know that, you know, if you don't finish a sandwich, you know, it isn't the end of the world. 
on the other hand, there's some things that are. But yes, it's, I mean, that is a huge education. And I guess as parents, that's sort of one of our major jobs, isn't it? Is to get the scale of what really matters and what doesn't matter. Play and talk and talk and play is, I'd have thought, one of the best ways of doing it. And enabling your children to have a space in which they can do this thing, this playing out. I mean, you, you know, the, every day they're seeing these horrific scenes on the telly, on the radio, and, and even if they're not, then they're talking about it at school or whatever. So it's not as if you can shield them from it, whatever it is, let's say Syrian refugees, you know, or this terrible thing happened recently with, um, oh dear, the refugees, they, they were pushed away, weren't they? It was, anyway, it was a horrible thing that happened. Well, you know, the kids, you want them to have the space where they can work that out. And it may be that it's talk, and just talk in a very free way, but it may well be that there will be play, that some of these things will be worked through. Well, and therapy is increasingly used, you know, in the form of play, isn't it? Yes, no, absolutely. And I know people, you know, who founded play therapy groups. There's a over 90-year-old friend of uh, my parents, and she set up TheraPlay in, in Chicago. She founded a whole movement with diff teenagers who were experiencing huge difficulties and I remember I didn't ever go with her to one of her sessions, but she described for me of teenagers coming in, not talking, being aggressive, punching each other and all the rest of it, and then inviting them to play games and to role play and so on, and how bit by bit they could work through things. And if you even go back to the famous psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, she started off doing something very, very simple. She just had a little set of dolls that you could identify if you wanted to as mum, dad, brother, sibling or teacher or whatever and would invite the children who came in who were nearly always in difficulty of some sort to play out some of these things to tell a story about who they are and she very quickly could see because of the kind of role play that the child would do with the with the dollies effectively that what was going on and the more they played with it the more they could actually voice what it was that was worrying them but they weren't saying my mum my dad it was this funny dolly with a hat or this dolly, you see what I mean? So they could play with those things in a way that they felt safe. Because if you say mum or dad, it may not be safe. Whereas if you play with a, a dolly, it feels much safer. Hello. My dog's arrived. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Very good. And he wants to know who I am. Hello, you're yeah. giving me a smell. Who's this? Hello. This is Ooh. Storm. This is who? Storm. Storm. So yes. Storm's come in from the storm. Storm has come in from the storm. And there you go. And <laughs> seems quite happy with me. Yeah, yeah. She's done a little wag. Yeah, absolutely. People so she loves. So I did there? I, I played, didn't I? I did a few pattings with Storm to see whether um, maybe they'd sort of snap at me or not. So I experimented. I looked straight into... Her eyes, is it her? Her eyes, yeah. Her eyes, she seemed quite happy with that. And now she's wandered off, so she thinks I'm a safe person. Yeah. She doesn't think I'm a danger to you. Because that's what dogs do sometimes, isn't it? If they see their owner being kind of challenged in somewhere or another, they get quite cross. But obviously, but she, it's very interesting the way she checked me out there. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. She came straight, straight away. In. Yeah. Bam, who is this person? Yeah. Oh, I smelt all right, which is a relief. Yeah. But also probably picked up from your body language that I was no threat to you. And I was no threat to her. A little bit of patting. Yeah, that's it. So there we are. We, did all, we, we resolved something with play, didn't we? I'm not sure, though, if a burglar came in with bad intentions. As long as they were sort of, uh, they gave her a treat, I think she'd, she'd be totally happy with them. Yes. 
Well, they're not guard dogs anyway. It's a Labrador, <laughs> so it's a chasey thing. Exactly. It? She's a dog designed for play rather than protection. And, and running after a thing you've lobbed or that they think that you want. Although actually a dog is a great way to get children to play. I Absolutely. mean, they are ju- I see that how my children interact with her and it is, you know, she's constantly asking them to play, but they are a bit like a parent has much more patience with a younger, with a young child. My children have so much more patience with her and it's, it's yeah. a brilliant in, in, engagement to see. And there's a huge role play thing going on. I mean, we've had two cats up until recently and I know my teenage daughter got through a whole load of parenting things. She became a parent to the, the, the ill cat and so on. And that, that, that kind of attitude to an animal, that you can be a sort of surrogate parent and play out what it would be like to be a parent if you treat an animal. I mean, some animal carers would say it's not appropriate, but the kids will treat animals a bit as if they're their own children and, and sort of get them to do things that, you know, that they feel their younger self might have done. So you can see that. That, And again, this is all part of, we've got this word socialisation, haven't we? And we always think of socialisation of how you get one child to play with another. But part of socialisation is also playing out what we might become. So obviously, you know, when you, when you play with a dog or an animal, and in fact, a lot of children's writers do this, you, you enable the child to be the surrogate parent which is part of an initiation into our, our, well, how we are in society, how we nurture each other, you know, how we nurture young people. So you're giving children a chance to switch roles, aren't you? And a, a lot of stories have that, where there's a moment where the child is looking after the pet or the animal and the parent is looking after the child. I mean, it's quite interesting. Or well, the parents have disappeared. So you get a story like Dogger. And the concern for the child for the loss of Dogger is partly the concern of a parent for the loss of a child. So it can work vertically. So it's such a clever book, Shirley Hughes, because it enables the child to explore those emotions. I've lost my toy as if the toy would care. But in actual fact, it's you caring as a parent, really, a parenty type person for the loss of this thing you care about. I mean, where do we learn caring? Where do we learn that, you know? I mean, if we don't care for each other, we haven't got anything, have we? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, play can help you with that. Mm. I mean, one of the things we've talked about, you know, we've talked about play for a long time. One of the things we haven't mentioned is toys. Yes. How important are toys to play? Uh, Yes. Or are they actually bad for play? I mean, Mm. all the different types of play we've talked about, which I think are the most important types of play, have not involved anything bought, nothing from Amazon. Yeah. Well, we get caught, don't we? We get caught into this thing. I mean, you can never escape it even if let's say you want to that there is a a business of exchange and buying stuff at christmas and birthdays let's just say that for the moment or indeed you know you've been given your child's been given some pocket money and you go past a toy shop or you go as you say looking online and you say well what do they want uh, my son seems to collect footballs it matters to him an awful lot that he has at least 10 i've no idea why i thought I just had one when I was a kid, and then when that one bust, you got another one. But anyway, he has to have ten. <laughs> so we can't escape it. You can't do that sort of ultimate purest thing and say, well, look, you know, here's a wooden spoon, here's a carrot, play with it. You, 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 you are trapped, if you like, in that sort of cash nexus thing of toys. The question then is what you do with them. So I was, when I was writing the book, I asked my daughter that she loved Playmobil. Yeah? So here are these very cleverly made scenes they're like little play sets 
and you take these little characters which look rather blank and weird and a bit like robots and you put them into quite realistic scenes of airports and doctor surgeries, hospitals. And I said, I could remember her when she was younger, so she's 19 now, when she was about eight or nine, going upstairs with her friend Clara, and I could hear them playing with this Playmobil. And I said, what did you play? Because, you know, I didn't intrude on it. And she said, oh, it was fantastic. We're the planes that take off. One of us would be the air controller. The other one would be the pilot. Then we'd switch over. And I thought, well, wouldn't, well, isn't that interesting? So she took this quite sort of inanimate stuff and it is very ready-made. And my first reaction might be as a bit of an old hippie, well, you know, why haven't they got, like, I don't know, a piece of wood and playing airports with three bits of wood? But here she was, she took this thing that, you know, it cost money, you know, we spent some money, used her pocket money or whatever and whatever it was to add to it and so on. And I, I can detect in myself a little bit of sort of hippie disapproval of it. And then she told me this incredibly rich games that she played with it with her friend Clara and they switch roles and then they put up the hospital and then there'd be doctors and nurses and patients and all that stuff. And just two of them so they could multi-role, they could be ten different characters and for hours, quite happily. And I thought, well, that worked then, didn't it? So, you know, whether I'm going to credit Playmobil with that or whether my brilliantly clever daughter, obviously, you know, as a, you know, Jewish, as a Jewish mother, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, it's my wonderful clever daughter. <laughs> but you see what I mean is that I could use my prejudice about the commodification of play through toys and, you know, it's all a wicked capitalist conspiracy and that we spend all this money and our kids don't play with it and they all sit in the cupboard. So I can do that speech and then my daughter can say to me, I'll speak through my daughter's mouth here if you like, and say... She had the most wonderful time doing airports and hospitals with this, with this Playmobil stuff. And, you know, she's, that's her best friend. She still sees her best friend. They're now, you know, in their 19s, about to be 20. They're still best friends. They care for each other. When terrible things happen, as they have happened in their lives, they ring each other up, talk to each other. So they've experienced all that play together. They care for each other. Who knows what things they explored about the world, about hospitals and airports, both of which, you know, we live in in real life, don't we? You know, we're flying places and going to hospitals and so on. So I think, well, suppress all that stuff, I would say, that other stuff, you know, and, and give that outfit a credit, credit for it. Same with Lego. I mean, my oldest, who's 43 now, I mean, the hours, I mean, unimaginable lengths of time genuinely playing with Lego. I mean, he did follow instructions, but then he would build apparatuses of, I'd, I mean, unbelievable stuff. I mean, way beyond anything I've ever done and spent hours and hours on it. And, you know, I just think the kind of person he is, is somebody who needed that space and time and actually away from school because it didn't suit him because it was too, you do this, you do that. And he, he couldn't cope with it very well I mean I thought we coped okay but you know he describes himself as like you know being quite unhappy and it gave him this sort of wonderful space where he could build and practice things and as I say in the book the ancient Greeks talked about it they said you know what is playing with buildings if it isn't trying out to be an architect I mean who would know more about building than the ancient Greeks you know as we know from the, the Parthenon you know and there were already philosophers noticing that children were putting one stone on top of another one and finding out what worked. So, you know, I, my, my hippie inclination to be a bit against all this sort of vast plastic toyery stuff, in actual fact, I, I have to keep quiet about it and overcome my prejudices. 
So I'm learning. <laughs> I guess children are just versatile. They'll play with anything. And if your children had if only you give them space, stone, th- yeah. that's the thing. And and not to be too over kind of instructive and and being disappointed. I mean, the most destructive thing you can be as a parent, I think, is to be disappointed. So if your kid, you know can't follow the instructions on the Lego, then it would be absolutely disastrous to say, oh, you fool, you couldn't build that. You know, I mean, I mean, maybe the people listening would no more dream of doing that than flying over the, the moon. But, I mean, there are some parents who let it be known that somehow or other their child has been a disappointment. It's the most destructive thing of all. You know, and there's been a whole thing in recent years about how, you know, we praise our children too much. I'd flip that on its head and say... Don't express disappointment when your kids try things out. It is unbelievable. Just think back to when you've seen your parents being disappointed. Not when you've done something, you know, awful. They're entitled to be a bit disappointed about that. But, you know, with, with just a, a playing thing or even a, some schoolwork, you know, there's no point in that because all it will do is erode your sense of self, your sense of worth, your sense of being, the sense of whether anything's worth trying or not. You know, why would you do that to a child and suggest that somehow or other you're a disappointment to them? I did, I did a book about Emil Zola uh, living in England. This may sound very tangential, but you'll see. And he wrote home to his children who were in Paris. And there is the most awful thing to his son. I mean, it's just terrifying when you see it. And he says, do you know, if you don't get good grades, we won't love you. He says it absolutely explicitly to his little son, Jacques. And you just think, oh, my goodness, that poor little chap. You know, he would have got... Now, you know, looking at it in the 21st century, you might say that, well, you know, that was Zola being ironic. But, I mean, the little boy was only about nine. And, you know, in French, they have these marks out of 20. Everything is marked out of 20. And, you know, 18 is fantastic and 10 is very bad. So he says, you know, you've got 13, 13, you've got 13. You know, you must remember that if you don't work hard and get better than 13... Well, apart from one thing, you won't go up to the next year because they used to hold them down until they got 14 and 15. But also, you know, your mum and dad, they won't, they won't love you. And I remember thinking, God, that poor little kid, not only was his dad in England, and he didn't know whether his dad would survive or not, apart from else, because he was in exile and the police were after him. So not only did he, was he insecure about his dad for that, his dad writes to him and says, you've only got a 13, you're not even worth living because you've only got 13. And I kind of look at that and I think, I must never be like that. I must, you know, I say to it, it's, it's quite useful as a thing, you know, never be disappointed, you know, to, with, with, uh, with your kids because all you'll do is sort of pass it on as a sort of great burden that they've got to carry and fight against, you know. And do you think that's something that you realise from the start of your fatherhood journey? No. I think I may well have expressed disappointment to my oldest. Yeah, he'll be able to tell me off. I should ask him, actually. I'm sure he can tell me off. He's big and bold enough these days. Yes, whether he ever felt that. And who knows, that may be why he found school difficult, because I'd expressed disappointment at some point. I don't know. I mean, that somehow or other he hadn't done X or hadn't done Y and I was disappointed. You know, they've got enough room to be disappointed themselves. Why do they need somebody else's to add to it? I mean, it's awful, really, as an idea of nurture, isn't it? You know, I am a child, I'm nine, I did this, I am now disappointed. And then you go, and I'm disappointed, so you double it up. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? So anyway... And, and again, going back to my brother, he found play as a way of dealing with my dad's being disappointed. Do you see what I mean? He found that. It certainly benefited me, and I think it benefited him. Otherwise, it would be quite easy to go under that sort of weight of 
expectation and disappointment and he found a way out through play and then gave that as a gift to me you know well michael this has been great i've absolutely loved our chat you've really expressed how important play is and your book the book of play which is out now and available at all good bookshops is a brilliant well it's a brilliant essay on why play is so important but what i love is this has got lots of ideas for games because i if anything i struggle and i think i as a mother i also find it difficult sometimes to communicate with my children it's not like i can sit down with a cup of tea and we can have a great conversation because they have yet to to you know master the art of conversation and i think very often by initiating some kind of a game not only are we teaching them to play but we're also communicating in a way with them that they kind of get mm. and I mean, then with teenagers you sometimes just have to sit on the other side of the room and grunt at each other <laughs> i've discovered that you can just sort of nod and grunt with their play so my 15 year old is often playing in a variety of ways and i think you know, that maybe just grunting along with it is sufficient because if you're you're not there, then there's it's that thing we were talking about, the isolation that is they choose isolation, but sometimes they choose to grunt in your your company. So, you know, you have to go along with that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that to look forward to. Yes, you have. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. Marina, thank you. And thank you all for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you've downloaded this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at, mar- at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Michael and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.